Let's look at Malachi this morning, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the easiest of the minor prophets for you to find in your Bible. It's the one right before Matthew. So if you find Matthew, it might be right there, right before it. So we shouldn't need a long time to find it. And I want to continue my series uh, on the family that I wanted to start the year with. And I know we're already what, five weeks now, six weeks into the year. The year is old now. It's that fast. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I want to preach this morning on raising a godly seed. Would you stand with me as we read Malachi chapter 2? We'll read uh, verses 10 through 16. Malachi chapter 2. These are the words of God. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not make, he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let that none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garments, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together this morning, we ask that you would open it to us. That you would open our eyes, that we might see, behold the wonderful truths of your word we ask that you would help us, that we would understand your plan for families in particular and the way that you are working and at work in our world. I pray that all of us would submit our families to you and to your authority, to your government, to your rule, that we would follow what you have said in your word, that it would be important to us to keep your word in our families. And I pray that you'd help me as I open the word to your people. I pray that there would be uh, a clarity here in what is preached, that we would all see what our duty is, all of us, Lord, and that we would especially be diligent in the rearing of our children. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Not long before Malachi delivered this prophetic message in Israel, Ezra rebuked the people for their intermarriage with pagans. And in fact, there was a, a very large national repentance that resulted in a putting away of those heathen pagan wives. The 11th verse, as we read it in Malachi 2, tells us that Judah 
hath married the daughter of a strange God. So Malachi prophesied this just a couple of years after that national revival, national repentance under Ezra. But you need to understand from this passage, we understand that their sin was much greater than just a sin of intermarriage with pagan idolaters. The 16th verse, which we just read, tells us, for the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, that is, divorce. Now, it's not that God hated the putting away of those pagan wives. But you need to understand what was taking place in Israel at this time. This is after the exile. They've returned to Israel. They've rebuilt the walls under Nehemiah. They've rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel. Ezra has preached to the people and called them to repentance, really, in a sense, rebuilding the people. And now it's not as if, and this would be bad, but it's not as if it's the unmarried, the bachelors of Israel who have been eyeing those beautiful Philistine women and deciding that they're going to take a Philistine to be their wife or take some other idolater to be their wife. But what was actually happening here is that the married men of Israel were divorcing their wives in order to marry one of these pagan women. And then they went on right on worshiping at the temple as if nothing was wrong with what they had done. Which explains why God charged them in verse 10 with profaning his covenant. Why God said that they dealt treacherously in verse 11 and verse 14. They betrayed their covenant with God by betraying their covenant with their wives. From this passage, we can gather a few very important points about marriage. First of all, it's helpful to remember that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Contract between two people, but a covenant involves a third party here. And so the covenant here is a three-way relationship of responsibilities and privileges, which involves God as a witness. And in fact, God says that I am a witness against you. I am observing this treachery against your wives. So God is a witness that holds the couple permanently accountable. Second thing that we learn from the passage is God hates divorce. He hates, as verse 16 says, putting away. He hates especially, especially what it does to women and to children. So in verse 13, Malachi describes the tears. These, we assume, are the tears of betrayed wives. Their husbands have put them away in order to pursue pagan wives. And their tears, the tears of these betrayed wives that cover the altar and cause God to say to the men, I will not hear or receive your sacrifice. 
In the, eighth, in the 16th verse, the prophet describes these men as covering violence with their garments. And in the 15th verse, the Lord protests against this. And did not he make one? That is, speaking of the covenant of marriage, did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit. Now, that's a confusing phrase in our Bible. Although he had the residue of the spirit, that is, he had the life-giving spirit or the creative powers, what Malachi is referring to. God had the creative power. God could have made several wives for Adam, but he did not. And that's the point. He made one. He had the power to make more than one, but he made one. One wife for one man, one husband. But out of all of this, God gives us a blessing. We are blessed. He tells us why he made one woman for one man. Verse 15, that he might seek a godly seed. That's the blessing for us. I shouldn't need to point out to you how destructive it is to our children <clears throat> to see our culture's disregard for marriage and the casual way people enter into it and go out of it. But this passage explains the problem. The problem is, in a culture that allows easy divorce, the women are abused. The women suffer. And more than just the women, the children suffer especially. As I've been preaching on the family here at the beginning of the year, I want to give some attention to this particular purpose of marriage, which God identifies here. Now, he shows the problem, cultural problem, with disregard for marriage, and especially the way that it affects the children, the way that it impacts them by turning them against the Lord. Do we not see that in our culture today? Young people, children who want nothing to do with God. And it's not just... Like, this is not a new thing in this generation, but it's been building this way as our nation has embraced easy divorce, no-fault divorce, which is in every state now. In fact, in a state that is a no-fault state, to bring cause, to try to attempt to divorce for cause, puts a, an excessive burden of proof on a person. So our, our government has actually steered us towards divorce on any grounds or no grounds at all, just irreconcilable differences. That's all. And God says that this is destructive to his purpose in marriage. And that purpose is that he might seek a godly seed. <clears throat> So far, I've pointed out, as I've been preaching on the family here, I've pointed out the way that God intended for man to rule in our world, which was by bearing children who would then go extend the subduing, would subdue farther and farther into the world. 
God intended that men would rule in our world by marrying a wife and having children who would help spread his kingdom from shore to shore. We focused on the relationship between husband and wife that's described uh, in Ephesians and the duties that apply to both the husband and the wife within the marriage. Husbands were made to rule in the world. Wives were made to support and help their husbands to do that. Now we want to turn our attention to the children, the work in particular of raising up a godly seed. God has identified this purpose in marriage, this purpose to raise up a godly seed. And that means a husband and wife should look for this as a primary goal in their marriage to produce godly offspring. Before I dig into the passage, into the message, I'm sorry. Let me offer some words of encouragement, because when I start preaching like this, there are, I know, a variety of people in a variety of different places. Not everyone's a family or or not everyone has children that they're raising right now. I should say it that way. Not everyone's a family. You You all have a family somewhere, somehow. All right. But it can be easy to say, okay, pastor's preaching to like three families right now and everybody else just. You know, kind of let your mind drift. No, no, no. We as a church need to understand what is supposed to be happening and how it's supposed to happen, number one. Number two, there are some of you who are at the beginning stages or perhaps haven't even started yet towards having children, raising up a family. You need to understand what this what God is calling you to in this. And so we need to preach this. We also have people here whose children are raised and, and out, gone, out of the house. And that also brings up some touchy matters. In some cases, your children are not faithful to the Lord, not following the Lord, and you may be discouraged. You may hear a message like this, and it might remind you of some of the pain that you experience with that. Um, So we have different people at different places in this. I understand the way a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. But I also know that God loves to display the incredible depths of his forgiveness and love to us and his acceptance. I understand this. That God knows our every fault, our every failure, but he is never um, discouraged about us. He never decides on that basis, you know, I made a mistake with this one right here. We can be thankful for this. Satan never tires of accusing us, but God never tires of reassuring us of his loyal love. But also, I would want you to remember that as long as your children are alive, though they may be wayward, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end. It's not too late. God can bring them back. You can have a right spirit towards them. You can encourage them and seek to draw them back to the Lord. And certainly, when you have grandchildren, Your work is not done. 
you also play a significant role in their lives. I have talked many times about my grandfather when my father died and the way that he expressed his love to me and encouraged me and and wrote to me and called me and and so many things that he did. He would when we would go to visit, which was about every year, year and a half, and he would send everybody out and say, I'm staying up tonight with David. And we'd have powdered donuts and milk, and I'd eat two, and he'd eat all the rest. And we would talk late into the night about things, and he would just talk to me about the Lord and talk to me about the things that mattered and what a shaping influence that had in my life. I wanted to please my grandfather. I wanted him to be proud of me. That makes a difference right there. If your children have abandoned the faith, you have a greater work to do in winning your grandchildren to Christ. But even if your children faithfully follow the Lord, you play a significant role in influencing your grandchildren to follow the Lord. And you still play a role in your children's lives as well. So that being said, let's turn our attention here to the duty of parents to raise up a godly seed. Remember that the Lord joined you in marriage to your husband, to your wife. And he did this that he might seek a godly seed. This is what God wants. And those who worship the Lord should, above all else, seek to give God what he wants. With that in mind, I want to offer some help and encouragement to you as we seek to raise up a godly seed. There's four points, really, I want to make to you. Here's the first. Remember who builds the house. Remember who builds the house. The psalmist in Psalm 127 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. The psalmist goes on, and I'm not quoting directly here, but goes on to say that it's vain for you to lose sleep because he gives his beloved sleep. So in other words, the idea is that you work, you labor diligently, and then you lay down at night and you leave it in God's hands. And this is the pattern of faith that should characterize us in not just in this part of our Christian lives, but in every part of our Christian lives that we labor, that we work, that we engage in the work that God has given us to do. And then we lay down our heads at night knowing that I did my best today and I leave it in your hands, God, and I trust you with this. Let me tell you something. The only assurance that we have regarding our families the only assurance is the promises that God has given us in his word. We cannot, we must not rest in our ability as parents. We must not rest in the things that we do to raise up our children. But we must instead rest on the promises, stand on the promises that God has given us regarding his children. This is God's work. He gave those children to you and he is working to build the house and he is calling you to join him in that work, to, to be 
an extension of the work that he is doing, to participate with him in it. But as we do so, as we seek to build good homes for God's children, the king's children, we must rely on God and not on ourselves. Don't put confidence in your work, but trust your work, entrust your work to the Lord your God. This would require us to lift our parenting itself before the Lord in prayer, to ask the Lord to guide me and help me that I will parent these children that you've entrusted to me the way you want to, in a way that pleases you, in a way that draws my children to yourself rather than driving them away from you. It requires us to do our work for the Lord and not for ourselves. Avoid the trap of living out your fantasies and unfulfilled desires through your children. You might look at them and think, wow, they're, they're, they've got some athletic ability. Maybe they could be famous. Don't do that. They're really smart. Huh? Maybe I can, maybe I can help them along and, and, and people will think what a smart person I am because I have such a smart child. That is not the objective. That is not the goal. And nothing will destroy your home faster than raising your children, building your home for yourself to bring credit and glory to yourself. Whatever we, make, whatever we turn into an idol, the Bible teaches, will be destroyed. The second thing I want to point out to you is the necessity of establishing the culture of the Lord. Establish a culture of the Lord. Ephesians 6 and verse 4 teaches us this. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, fathers are responsible for this. But ultimately, this is the goal and purpose of parenting. The Greek word rendered bring them up in Ephesians 6, 4 is used twice in the book of Ephesians. Once in Ephesians 5 and verse 29, speaking of the husband and the way he takes care of his body, that no man hates his own body, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. The word nourisheth in Ephesians 6, 4 is rendered, bring them up, nourish them, in other words. To nourish them up, to maturity. This nourishing up, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord encompasses the entire work of raising children to nourish them into maturity. Feed their body, feed their mind, feed their soul, nurture them into mature adulthood. The parents, especially fathers, are told to nourish them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The responsibility is laid on the father. The word nurture comes from the Greek word pedia. Thayer describes pedia as the whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals and employs for this purpose now commands and admonitions, now reproof and punishment. 
So nurturepedia is the culture that you create, the family culture that you create in your home for the purpose of nourishing them into maturity. The word, the Greek word pedia covers a lot of ground. It includes instruction, discipline, correction, punishment. For the Greek, in the Greek mind though, pedia went beyond that and referred to the education and enculturation of the child. Greek parents wanted one thing for their children above all else. What was most important for them was that their children would grow up to be good Greeks. And so they wanted to expose their children to all the things that made Greek culture distinct and in their minds, glorious. A Greek child was considered educated when the cultural traditions were passed down, when the child was prepared to take his place in the culture, when the parents were confident that their child would add to the culture that was around them and not disrupt from that culture. Now, Paul takes that Greek ideal and applies it to the Christian home. We're not raising good Greeks, of course. We're not raising, raising good Americans. We're raising good Christians, a godly seed. Parents are commanded to nourish their children up in the culture of the Lord. These are God's children. The king has entrusted his children to you. You are raising the king's children. Any servant of the king who's responsible to help educate the king's children knows that the most important thing is to teach those children to be like the king, to be kingly, to bear themselves in that kingly way. So how does the king want his children to be raised? Any king wants the traditions and customs of his cultural heritage passed down to his children who will someday have charge of the kingdom. He wants to perpetuate the kingdom through his children. He wants his, his throne to be established for generations to come. Even so, our children are the children are the king's children. And we have been entrusted to raise them up in the culture of the king. Most Christian parents believe two things about their duty as parents. First of all, they believe that they ought to discipline and correct their children. They believe in spanking. And secondly, that they ought to teach them and train them. And these two things are very important to our work as parents. I'm not denying that at all. But... If you limit your parenting to feeding them three square meals a day, spanking their bottoms when they misbehave, and having family devotions with them before they go to bed, that's, that is not the total of what you're doing. That's, that's partial. Those things are part of the work. But also, and this is most important, and I'm afraid often overlooked, you must intentionally establish a culture of the Lord in your home. 
Much could be said about this. I've considered I may do it, preaching a separate series on the idea of establishing the culture of the Lord in your home. But I'm not going to do a series right now. It may feel like a series, but it won't be. I'm preaching one message here. And for now, I'll mention to you the four pillars of any culture. And then point out what makes a Christian culture distinct cultures. We can boil culture down to four main elements. And, that, you know, there are theories and so on about it. I'm not going to get into all of that. But four main elements. Symbols, languages, values, and norms. Things that make up a culture. Okay, symbols include the various things in our culture that stand for things we value. Uh, we have status symbols. We know what a status symbol is. Certain clothes, certain handbag, certain tennis shoes, uh, certain vehicles. You drive a Tesla, you drive a Suburban. Uh, those kinds of things that are status symbols for us. Certain watches and so on. Those are symbols. Uh, the symbols, the various things in our culture that we value. Uh, the American flag means something to us. It's a symbol. It symbolizes something. When we see someone burning it, we're offended because of what it symbolizes. It's just a piece of cloth, some would argue. But it means something to us. It's meaningful. <clears throat> That's why also the cross is meaningful to a believer. That's why Bible-believing Christian churches have a cross somewhere on them or in them because the cross is central. It is the central symbol of our faith. That's why we set up Christmas trees at Christmas time, because of what it symbolizes. It announces you have a Christmas tree in your window. You're announcing to the world a recognized symbol that you celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Traditions also fall under the category of symbols, a wedding dress, the seventh inning stretch, a checkered flag and the Lord's Supper. All of these are are traditions that are symbolic of something. Language is a second element of culture, and language refers to the way we speak, but also what we speak about. We want our missionaries to learn the heart language of their people because that helps them understand the people. When I, I um, study, especially New Testament passages, uh, I study in the Greek. And I learned the way that author, John, writes differently than Paul. And I learned more about the mind of John by seeing the language that he uses. Brother Eddie Ray was with us last week, and I asked him if, um, any, if the Chinese had begun to develop their own uh, hymns in their own language, or do they merely translate our hymns into their language? There's a big difference between the two, because there are thought patterns that fit with our language. And there are thought patterns that are consistent for the Chinese as well that fit with their patterns. Pray that there will be a maturity of Christian faith in China to the place where they will begin to develop their own hymns in their own language that are inspired by their own people. That's what we should hope for. Language carries a whole lot of cultural freight that we don't really even think about most of the time. It includes more than our native tongue. It also includes dialect. It includes local meanings that we have for words and the way we pronounce things 
and so on. Even slang terms that we use. Values, the third element of culture, refers to the things that a culture values, what it rewards, what it punishes, what it, what it calls heresy, what it considers to be orthodoxy. We could point out all kinds of things, you know, um, think globally, act warm, uh, act, act warmly, <laughs> I'm thinking global warming, think globally, act locally. This is, this is a commonplace worldview expression that we have come to recognize, whether we agree with it or not, it tells us something about our culture here. The rules we live by show really what our standards are. Utah was reluctant to support Trump because Utah puts a high value on niceness and kindness. In fact, such a high value that you may not have known this, but last week the Utah uh, legislature passed a resolution <coughs> called uh, declaring a one kind act a day day. So we have now designate, a designated day for making doing one kind act a day day because this is this is what we're all about right here in Utah. Now norms is the fourth <clears throat> pillar of culture and norms refer to cultural expressions. Going to college, getting a driver's license, standing in line, things that we don't really think much of. I was at the airport and I was putting all my stuff on the tray, you know, like you have to do and submit to this um, violation of your constitutional rights. And I was doing that and then I you know, I have my shoes off and I see the line and I see some people standing back there and I just jump in there. I'm not really thinking about it. And the lady said, hey, you, you get to the back of the line. You just cut in front of all those people. And and I did. I wasn't like, you can't tell me what to do, because in America, we don't cut in line. Now, when I went to Mexico, they don't even know what a line is. When we were over in Israel, they have no idea what a line is. You pull up to an intersection. It's like a three way intersection. No stop signs because it wouldn't matter anyway. And everyone is just worming their way through. I mean, like it was the most dangerous thing I've ever seen in my life, except everyone was driving like two miles an hour. <clears throat> but still, these are cultural expectations. Some of our norms take the form of courtesies shown to others, holding the door for ladies, shaking hands, etc. Those kinds of things, the way we greet each other our norms, okay? So let's apply this in the home. I, I don't intend for this to be a Bible study, but I think these things are important, and I'll get to preach to you here in a moment. Whether you accept these elements of culture or not is really not the issue. This is the way I'm presenting it, so I want you to understand it that way. The point is that we are to build a culture of the Lord in our homes. The symbols that become a part of a family's heritage, whether it be the place of the the place that the Bible holds in our homes, how important we think the Bible is to us in our home, the way that mom decorates for certain seasons of the year, those kinds of things are symbols, the clothes that we wear and don't wear, the family traditions that we establish and the ones that we forget about and neglect that never really become traditions. All these are communicating to your children what matters to you as a family. What you hang on your walls and on your refrigerator tells everyone it communicates what you value, 
what you treasure. What does your dining room table symbolize to your family? Is that the place where the stuff goes after school? Or is that the place where the family gathers for meals? What about the living room? Is that the place where the visitors go? Or is that the place where the family gathers around the word of God and reads and prays together? Does your family have any distinctly Christian traditions? When we were over in Israel on Friday, our guide began to prepare us Friday afternoon for the Sabbath. He began pointing out to us that this is the eve of the Sabbath. And so everything is starting to shut down. And when we got back to our hotel, we we had a hotel right on the Sea of Galilee. And it had been fairly empty throughout the week. Uh, But when we got there on Friday afternoon, he said that the hotel will be jammed full of people and all the meals will be full. There were probably 500 people in the dining room that night. And all over the place, families were gathered in circles and chairs and they were playing games and just having fun together as a family. And I said to my wife, that helps to explain why Jewish children are so loyal to their families. That's the kind of weekly event that builds a great deal of love and loyalty in a family. And it was an encouragement to me and something that we decided when our kids were young. And that was that every week we were going to celebrate the Lord's Day. Saturday night, my wife makes a great meal and really lays it out for us. And we have a great time and some great traditions that we do together. Chocolate. We had chocolate last night before the meal. I love dessert before the meal. Uh, we had we have cheese. We didn't do that last night, but we normally have some kind of gourmet cheese that we taste and try and pass around and the kids hate. And uh, <clears throat> we have other things like that. And then we do a hymn story and, and various things that we do together as a family on Saturday nights that are intended to promote and to exalt the Lord's Day as a special day of the week. This is what I'm talking about here. Does your family have distinctly Christian traditions? What about language? What do you discuss around the table or in the living room? More importantly, how do you speak when you're angry? When you're frustrated, when you're irritated, do you speak sweetly when you're trying to manipulate or get something from someone? Your kids probably can answer that maybe better than you. The language that you use in your home shapes the culture of your home in a most powerful way. When I listen to my children talk the other day, One of my daughters said something. I started laughing. I said, that could have been any one of the ladies in this house could have said that exact thing. I've heard it come out of all of your mouths. Let me stress the importance of those commonplace worldview sayings that you use in your home. You know, the kind of thing that when you grow up, you'll say something like dad always said this. Mom always used to say this. Those are the kinds of things that are shaping 
your home and your family. Now, I hope that when my kids leave my home and they remember the things that dad used to say, I hope those things will be God-centered things. I hope those things will be scriptural things that we were reminding them of, teaching them. How, How have the values of your home been established and communicated by you? When the kids are in trouble, what do you say? When you're correcting bad behavior, what standard do you appeal to to show them why the thing that they did was wrong? Your values show up whenever you make decisions about what the kids will do and what they will not do. And the way that you tell them, explain your decision to them. And your values affect the way you explain your decision to your children. We must have biblical standards in our homes, both for our children, but also for ourselves that guide us in the decisions that we make regarding our families. The standard ought to be clearly communicated, clearly defined and communicated and applied consistently in the home. When parents correct their children, they should be reminding them of the standard that was violated. And this is why we're going to do what we're doing. This is an important way that values not only are communicated, but also passed down to the next generation so that the next generation understands not just the rationale for what you did, but also what their duty is as parents. Well, will the kids... What, the, what will get the kids in trouble says a lot about what your values really are. Now, you can tell everybody that we're a Christian home and we're a Christian family and we live by the Bible, but your children know what values are priority for you. And a lot of the way that's communicated is in what gets them in trouble. If the greatest crime that they could ever commit is the crime of embarrassing you in public, then the children will know what you value above all other things. A child was once asked what was more likely to get him in immediate trouble if he broke a valuable vase or if he disobeyed his mother. And the child did not hesitate, but said, if I broke the vase, I'd be in immediate trouble. See, the family's values were communicated very clearly No matter what the parents said, the child got the message. Now, this one might surprise you, but interruptions communicate values. What can be interrupted in your home? What what disruptions are you okay with? What interruptions do you take in stride? And which ones drive you crazy? If when you're watching football... It's to be no, no discussion, no interruption, no, we'll, we're not turning it off, we're watching the game. You are communicating what you value. If your Bible time can be interrupted, but your TV show can't be, you're communicating what you value in that. When your children know, and they do know, what, what is off-limits, 
to them, which part of your routine they can disrupt and which part they cannot disrupt and what you're willing to set aside. They know what you value based on that. In a Christian home, a high priority ought to be placed on family devotions together. The dinner table ought to be a key gathering place in a Christian home. Family times ought to be sacred to us. It should take a lot to get those canceled. In our home, we, since the kids were little, gave our kids a night with dad. Each one of the kids had a night with dad, and we do 30 minutes. We do longer now uh, that they're older. And, uh, you know, those times are times that were very important. Now, there are certainly times where we couldn't do it. So we'd have to delay it. Sometimes we'd have to skip it. Sometimes we would announce that we're skipping it. But this is a way that you're telling your children that you value them. Family times. Your house rules. Also communicate, really, the house rules are part of the norms. They establish the norms. Where do the coats go? Where do the shoes go? Do you take your shoes off when you come in the house? Do you stand for mom or do you stand for the ladies at the table? All those things establish the norms. There should be a clear understanding on the part of everyone in the house what God has commanded and those things that God has directly commanded should not be optional to us. But your family also ought to know what your house rules are and should know the difference between God's rules and the house rules. You know, if if in your house you take your shoes off when you walk in and you ask everyone to do that, that's that doesn't amount to the, you know, the Ten Commandments right there. And it shouldn't be treated like that. But <clears throat> your your family and your children should be taught a healthy respect for the house rules, which define the courtesies that will be shown to each other in the house. It's right and proper that in a Christian home, courtesy would be shown, actively shown, to other members of the family. Now, God commands parents to establish such a Christian home that love comes out, the love of God comes out of the woodwork, that the aroma of love fills the house. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. The Bible is telling you that your love for God is to be communicated to your children. It is to permeate the house. It's to come out of the walls, come out of the woodwork. It is the aroma that should greet them when they walk in the house instead of the aroma of a stinky attitude. Ephesians 6 and verse 1, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and hath given himself for us an offering 
and his sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. When your children walk in the house, do they smell the bad attitude, the bad spirit between mom and dad? That's part of the culture of your home. The third point I want to make to you is just to point out some of the pitfalls and traps that people fall into in regards to this. And really, just the pitfalls. I want to show you what what keeps us from being able to do this. In establishing a culture of the Lord, we are up against a couple of dangerous adversaries. The first of these adversaries is the world and worldly-minded Christians who sometimes are more poisonous than the world itself. I've never had anyone assault me and insult me about standards that I hold quite like Christians do. The world typically doesn't, doesn't really even pay attention to that. If we do a fair job of establishing the culture of Christ in our families, then our children will very easily recognize the world as an alien culture and they will want nothing to do with it. I understand that people say, oh, no, no, no. If you expose them to the world, they'll want that. No, no, no. The beauty of Christ is far greater than the beauty of the world. Far greater and more appealing. The problem is never, never that they see the world as so much more alluring and attractive than Christ. The problem is that they're not given a true picture of Christ. They're not given the true glory, the full glory of Christ in our homes and in our culture. And therefore, the world's the, the world is more attractive than a false Christ. Yes, a partial Christ, a hidden Christ, a concealed Christ. But for those who are saved, he is precious. He is precious. Now, I know that conventional wisdom among many conservative believers is to shelter their children from exposure to the world. And I don't advocate at all that you should pull up to the curb of the world and kick your kids out and say, now go fend for yourself. At all. I don't say that. But the parents should be teaching their children to navigate the world, to understand it, helping them know how to think about it. Absolutely. God gives you, in fact, as parents in part to guide them so that our children understand that alien culture and understand why it is contrary to God. But if parents will work hard to establish the culture of the Lord in their homes, a culture that's characterized by love and grace and rigor and joy, your children will know the difference and they will want the Christian faith if they're converted. But if you merely try to keep them from every glittering thing in the world, they'll chase after anything that glitters, including the garbage of the world. We want to raise our children in such a way that they can plunder the gold of Egypt. But we also want them to understand the difference between plundering the gold, raiding the treasure chests of Egypt, and dumpster diving. And there's a big difference between the two. Now, if you've taken them around and shown them the dumpsters, they'll recognize that things glittering in the dumpster are not gold, not treasures, 
not to be you're not to die for those things. But there is gold in Egypt and God has called us to plunder it. Another way of saying this is to say, if you put your children in a garden of no, and if the only way to escape the garden of no is to run out of the garden, they'll run out of the garden to get to the trees of yes. Everyone's trying to get to the tree of yes. Now, God, when he created the first man, gave us a wonderful example. He put him in a garden full of trees and every tree was called yes, except one. One tree was the tree of no. Most of the trees were trees of yes. <clears throat> now, I recognize a fault in the analogy. Adam and Eve did choose the tree of no. They're in the garden of yes. They chose the tree of no. And that does point out human folly right here. But I stand by analogy to the death. When your kids head over to the, the tree of no, and they will, correct them. Correct them. And instruct them. But don't frustrate your children with rules, rules, rules everywhere, which I think the Apostle Paul might describe as provoking them to wrath. Teach them the joy of following the Lord and help them see it. The second of these adversaries is our own fallenness. Especially, we tend to be lazy. And we take half measures. It looks good, but then we find that it requires work and we have to work hard. And we don't feel like working hard. That's what we do when we go to work and they pay us. But when we're at home, there's no, the pay is not great. The work is great. In this thing of establishing a culture of the Lord, we cannot, we must not assume that a Christian mom and a Christian dad will automatically equal a Christian home. Christian will never be the default setting of your home. Rather, godly parents must intentionally establish a culture of the Lord in their homes. That means you decide which books will be read to the children, which movies will be watched, and why you want to read them and why you want to watch them. Establish traditions in your home that put on display the joy and the delight of following the Lord and that encourage your children to pursue the Lord with their whole heart. The fourth thing I want to point out to you is learn the secret of a blessed home. The 127th Psalm says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And the 128th Psalm says, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord and that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants about that round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. 
and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all thy days. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. Here's the secret. Your reverence for the Lord will do more to influence your children towards the right than anything else. That reverence shows up in a thousand unspoken ways. The way you respond when things don't go your way, when you get frustrated or in the face of failure. How problems are solved in your home. Do you get frustrated with each other? Do you yell and scream? Do you appease and capitulate? Do you buy off your spouse with flowers or some other peace offering? Is the loudest voice or the most, more, most stubborn person the one who typically wins? Does the more domineering spouse get their way? Or do we make wise decisions through reasonable discussions? How do we treat failure in our children? Do we ridicule? Do we despise? Do we embarrass? Do we chastise? Do we make excuses? Do we praise and flatter? All of these things are related to the way you reverence the Lord and see your duty as a father, as a parent, as a mother towards your children. If you don't purposely, intentionally establish the culture of the Lord in your home, an alien culture will be established for you. You become poor if you deal with a slack hand in this. Don't think for a moment that since you're a Christian and you're raised a Christian and therefore you automatically have a Christian home yourself. Don't think that. These things are not automatic. They didn't come with the furniture your parents passed down to you. Far too many Christian homes have a culture that is a product of laziness rather than the fruit of careful thought and diligent effort. You don't get the culture of the Lord in your home by accident. The culture of the Lord is not, not passed down in the genes. You can't go to the Christian bookstore and buy an aerosol can and spray it around the house to get the aroma of Christ. You don't get it because you go to church on Sundays or pray before you eat. We have a great need for Christian parents to dedicate themselves in the fear of the Lord to the task of bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now listen, it's epidemic in our country the way Christian families are losing their children. It's everywhere. And it's easy for us to sit back and frown and look at them and point out all their faults while ignoring our own. We are foolish to think that our children will be different than everyone else's kids. Just because, you know, um, we, were, we were a little nicer when they were young. Or, and this is a mistake parents fall into, they were so compliant when they were young. When your children are young, the concrete has not set. 
Anyone who pours concrete knows that the most important time to work with the concrete is as soon as you pour it. Right away, you've got to start. And then you've got to keep working on it until it's ready to be set. And I would remind you again, the cultures are not built by accident. If you don't build it, someone else will build it. The neighbor kids, the classmates, the TV. I'm afraid that most Christian homes, the culture of their home is shaped by the television shows they watch. Sometimes the kids are just left to do it for themselves because dad is distant or gone, absent in the home. We must have Christian homes for Christian kids. And so I'm challenging you in the fear of the Lord. Fear the Lord. Look at your home and your family. Point out, notice the areas where you've been slack. Maybe you were diligent when the kids were younger and you've slacked off now that they're older. But we have to work at this. Work at it. Remembering that God brought you and your wife together that you might seek, that he might seek a godly son.